Welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by the New Zealand Ministry of Health. I'm Dr. Louise Kugler, and today I have the pleasure of talking to Dr. Massimo Giola about syphilis in New Zealand. This is part one of a two-part series. Episode one will cover an update of syphilis in New Zealand. Episode two will be covering congenital syphilis and screening for syphilis in pregnancy. So please make sure you tune into both. Massimo is a general physician working at the Bay of Plenty DHB. He has specialist training in infectious disease medicine as well as sexual health medicine. Welcome, Massimo. Hello, nice to speak with you. Nice to have you here. So, syphilis is back. Massimo, can you tell our listeners what the current trends are, both in New Zealand and internationally, please? Yes, so um, syphilis is back in full force, really, and not just in New Zealand, but this has been a trend that's been going on for a few years now in, in many parts of the world, and particularly in developed countries. So it's not a New Zealand specificity, but in New Zealand we have seen very rapidly increasing numbers. In 2012, we had a little more than 50 cases a year nationwide. Um, last year we had 450 and this year we'll be probably approaching 500. So that means we've had a tenfold increase in five years, which is enormous. It started slowly and it started as discrete outbreaks of a few dozen of cases each in some of the major cities in New Zealand, particularly Auckland and Christchurch were the two early adopters, so to speak, of the new syphilis epidemic. And mostly it affected at the start some key population, specifically men who have sex with men. But what we've seen in the last two or three years is this MSM urban epidemic spreading through to the general population and to the regions. So the, the last couple of years, we've, we have had a few cases, quite a few cases involving heterosexual um, people and in particular women. And one of the concerning things is that whereas for men it's pretty much spread across all the age groups, in women, particularly the childbearing age groups are involved, and particularly young Maori women, which of course is a worry because when you see cases among women of childbearing age, you know that sooner or later you see cases of congenital syphilis, which is what we will mostly talk about in the second podcast. So what exactly is syphilis and what do we need to know? So syphilis is, is a bacterial STI caused by a spirochete. I'm getting a bit microbiologic nerd facts here. So the spirochetes are a, are a complex family of bacteria, and particularly the Treponema genus, um, of which Treponema pallidum is a part, um, can be transmitted sexually in the case of syphilis. The, the nasty and, and tricky thing about syphilis is that it can be transmitted through oral sex as well, and therefore condoms are not fully protective. 
um, as as we know, pretty much no one uses condoms for oral sex for a number of reasons. Plus, four out of five cases are completely asymptomatic from the beginning to the end. So that means that people can be infected and pass on the disease to others without ever realizing they are contagious. So that makes the control of the disease extremely difficult. It is a complex infection and classically in the textbooks we divide it in three stages. The primary stage is the inoculation stage, what was called in the classic textbooks the, the syphilitic chancre which is essentially an ulcer, a sore. Again, classically described as being painless and indurated, but, and, and solitary. But, you know, I've seen definitely cases that did not fit at all into the classical textbook description, and I was fooled more than once, misdiagnosing on clinical grounds um, multiple painful chancre as being herpes. And then the results came back and it wasn't herpes, it was syphilis. So everything I'm saying about the clinical presentation of syphilis can, must be taken with a grain of salt. And quite often what you see in the clinical real presentation is quite different from what you, you read in the textbooks. Anyway, so the primary stage or inoculation stage, classically you have a chancre, which could be on the genitals, but could be potentially anywhere in the body where exposure has happened to the bacteria, including places where you will never see it, like the back of the throat or the rectum, which explains why you know, so many people can be infected and passing on the disease without knowing it. The secondary stage is the dissemination stage where the bacteria get into the bloodstream and cause typically a rash. Again, the classical textbook description of the syphilis rash is um, sort of a maculopapular rash with the characteristic that lesions are, are present also on the palms of the hands and on the soles of the feet. And there are not many rashes that cause lesions on the palms and the soles. But again, this is the typical description. We've seen rashes that looked like anything, rashes that looked like psoriasis, you know, anything. So again, Keep in mind the textbook description, but really could be any rash or, of course, no rash at all. And people can still be completely asymptomatic during the secondary stage. And then we've got the tertiary stage, which takes normally years before it presents. And it's um, the stage where we, you've got end-stage organ damage. And that classically involves the bones, the central nervous system, the cardiovascular system, but again, you know, all possible atypical forms of syphilis have been described. Syphilis of the central nervous system is particularly important, and we call it neurosyphilis, and it can cause any neurological symptoms. It can mimic a stroke, it can mimic anything that can happen in the central nervous system, including isolated loss of vision and isolated hearing loss. 
So really, any neurological problem with a positive syphilis serology could be neurosyphilis. And finally, as we will discuss mostly in the second podcast, you can have, you can see mother-to-child transmission and congenital syphilis, which is a very serious event per se, not just clinically, but also as a sentinel event from the epidemiological point of view. So, Nesimo, how are we diagnosing syphilis? Right. So there are different tests that can be done, but at the end of the day, what I want our listeners to remember is the blood test, the serology, right? Because theoretically, you can find the treponemas, the bacteria, in the shank. So with some reasonably sophisticated laboratory methods like PCR or direct fluorescent microscopy, things like that, you can see the the bacteria in the shank. But realistically, most of our listeners will send for a serology, and that's perfectly fine. And syphilis can be very efficiently diagnosed through a very simple um, serological test. Sending the test is simple, but the results can be a bit tricky to interpret because the lab can run three different tests for the diagnosis of syphilis on a blood sample. Now, the first test that they normally do is a screening test, which is normally an enzyme immunoassay, an enzymatic immunoassay. So like all enzymatic immunoassays, the screening test for syphilis is very sensitive but it's not fantastic regarding specificity. So you can see false positive with the screening test. And that's why every time a lab finds a positive screening test, they run a second confirmatory test, which can be called in different names. Our laboratory calls it TPPA, some others are TPHA, but anyway, it's normally referred to as a confirmatory test. And this is a less sensitive test, so you don't want to use it for screening because it can give you false negatives. But if you do it as a second-line test after a positive screening test, and if it's still positive, then you've got a diagnosis of syphilis because the test, the confirmatory test, is very specific. So a positive EIA and a positive TPPA or TPHA establish without, beyond any doubt, really, a diagnosis of syphilis. Now, that triggers another problem because once you've been infected with syphilis once, your serology will be positive for life. These are not antibodies you lose. The EIA and the TPPA will be positive forever. That opens the question, is this this a recent syphilis that needs treatment or is it an old syphilis that has been treated before and is of no clinical consequence anymore. So that's why a third test is done. And this is a test that measures the activity of the disease. It's called RPR. And it's the only test that it's given back to the request to the requesting clinician as a quantity, as a quantitative test. 
and it's still done in the old way with the dilutions. So they test the undiluted serum first, and they call that one in one, and then they dilute it once, and it's called one in two, and then so on, one in four, one in eight, one in 16, one in 32. So the highest is the last positive dilution, the more positive is the test, and the more active is the disease. So a positive RPR, 1 in 64, is much more, much strongly positive than an RPR positive 1 in 1. And that can be used for clinical decision making. Of course, if the RPR is completely negative, then we normally conclude, particularly when we have a clear history of a previously treated syphilis, we can conclude this is an anamnestic serology caused by a past infection that's got no relevance for the present condition. But we are totally cognizant that interpretation of syphilis serology can be extremely tricky. So all sexual health clinics will be very happy to be rung by any healthcare provider that feels they need some help in interpreting uh, syphilis serology. Particular caveat, particular attention should be given by to an isolated positive EIA because as I told you before this could be a false positive so a positive EIA and everything else is negative but there are two caveats there are two situations where even an isolated positive EIA could be important and this could be, number one, a very early infection, because sometimes the EIA is the first test to become positive. So if you think clinically, this could be early syphilis, and then the result is back positive only EIA, then by any means, after a couple of weeks, repeat the serology, because you might see the other tests becoming positive as well. And then the second situation where even an isolated positive EIA could be important is screening in pregnancy. Because of the potentially catastrophic consequences of syphilis in pregnancy, even an isolated positive EIA should never be disregarded in pregnancy, but should always be repeated after a few weeks because that's not something you want to miss. What happens after treatment? I have hinted to that already. What happens is that EIA and TPPA remain positive forever, but we expect the RPR to fall as the activity of the disease decreases after treatment. And basically, we follow up with repeat syphilis serologies for a year, and we expect the RPR to, to become negative or at least to fall by four dilutions. Again, if there is any doubt, I'm sure all the sexual health clinics are very happy to be called if any clinician is in doubt regarding you know, whether this RPR falling from one in 32 to one in two represents a, a response or not. We will all be very happy to discuss that. Thank you, Massimo. So who should we be testing for syphilis and when should we be testing? Right, yes. So particularly now in New Zealand, we, we are having an epidemic, okay? So we need to be extremely careful not to miss cases of syphilis. And that's why 
I believe this is true, you know, always, but particularly during an epidemic, every time we do an STI test, we should really, an STI screening, or let's call it sexual health check if we prefer, then, you know, we send the swab for chlamydia and gonorrhea, we send the urines for chlamydia and gonorrhea. If we think that request is justified on clinical grounds, then we should also send a blood sample for syphilis and HIV, by the way, let's not forget about HIV. So my view really is, is that no STI screening is complete, particularly in an epidemic situation, without a test, a blood test for HIV and syphilis. Of course, if we diagnose someone with an STI, then we need to test for all the other ones. STIs notoriously hunt in packs. So someone who's got one, even something you know, thought to be trivial and inconsequential as chlamydia infection, is definitely at much higher risk of having other STIs, including syphilis. So anyone diagnosed with an STI, be it chlamydia, gonorrhea, trichomonas, they also need to be tested for syphilis and HIV, I will repeat myself. And then, you know, anyone presenting with something that might fit into the description I, I gave you before about the clinical presentation of syphilis. And again, we need to be broad here. As I told you, syphilis is a great mimic. So it can, you know, look like um, a, a thousand of other things. So anyone presenting with a genital skin lesion of any description, be it an ulcer, be it a warty growth, anything should really be tested for syphilis. Anyone presenting with a rash, particularly palmoplantar, particularly if there is a sexual health history that possibly is consistent with exposure to syphilis, should get tested. And any neurological problems, as I told you before, including hearing loss, visual loss, ataxia, behavioral changes, and a sexual health history that might be consistent with syphilis, they need to be tested. The sexual health history is only as good as we are good in taking it. So, you know, if I take a sexual health history thoroughly and I'm sure there is no risk for syphilis and I only want to test for chlamydia and gonorrhea, fine. But I need to be extremely confident that my sexual health history is really accurate. If we feel we are not that good in taking sexual health histories, then we need to cast our net a bit broader and include testing for HIV and syphilis, even if the person theoretically does not fit into the risk category. Much better to ask for a test unnecessarily and having it back negative than, you know, having, having the doubt whether it could be um, syphilis or not. Recently, one of my junior doctors here at the hospital sent me a clinical quiz that was published in one of the major medical journal, I think it was the New England Journal of Medicine or The Lancet, and basically the clinical case was someone with alopecia presenting to an ED department with behavioral changes. And then the quiz was, what's the diagnosis? 
and of course syphilis was one of the four or five questions and you know I pointed immediately I said this is syphilis and the junior doctor was a bit you know not really believing what I was saying or Massimo says it's syphilis because he can only think to syphilis but sure enough that was the diagnosis okay so alopecia syphilitica is a thing and of course you know putting two and two together someone who presents with alopecia and behavioral changes a unifying diagnosis could be indeed secondary syphilis with alopecia and early CNS involvement so that tells you you know how you really need to keep your options open and think about syphilis in a number of situations that might not be the classical ones. That's an interesting case, Massimo. Thank you. So, Massimo, we've had a patient come in who's had unprotected intercourse. What is the time delay between that intercourse and doing our syphilis screening? And then if that screening is negative, at what point would we re-repeat the test? That's an excellent question. So the the so-called window period when the test could be negative um, even after um, um, an infection has been transmitted for syphilis can be up to three months. Now for most people, the the, the tests will become positive earlier than that. But as you say, if we do a test and it's negative, we should really repeat one three months after exposure. Um, Of course, if you feel someone is coming to see you and that might be the only opportunity you have to test them because you're not sure if they will come back in three months, by any means, test them when you have the opportunity, particularly because very rarely the exposure, the possible exposure to syphilis was only one. It is likely this person was exposed to syphilis or potentially exposed to syphilis, you know, even before. So by any means, test that presentation if you have a doubt that that they might not come back and then offer retesting at three months. So how many cases, I can't remember, we actually found the syphilis serology being positive opportunistically because we didn't miss the opportunity to test someone at presentation. Thank you. So we get a positive result from our testing. How do we treat syphilis, Massimo? Yes, so we have some very good news here that are not news, really. So syphilis keeps being susceptible to penicillin, to dear old penicillin. So we don't have here the troubles caused by antibiotic resistance, like for gonorrhea, for example. So syphilis is still susceptible to penicillin and can be effectively treated with penicillin. We need to use the slow-release penicillin. So we need to use the benzathine penicillin or bicillin, the same we use for rheumatic fever prophylaxis and that probably most primary care providers would be familiar with in that indication. So the drug to use is benzathine penicillin, depot penicillin. And the dose, basically, it's a one single dose of 1.8 grams, which means one 900 milligram vial in one buttock and another 900 milligrams vial in the other buttock. And we use one dose only when we are treating contacts of a syphilis case, asymptomatic contacts, 
presumptively treated. And we use one dose also for primary syphilis and secondary syphilis. We use three doses, one week apart, the one from the other. So 1.8 grams and then 1.8 grams after a week and then 1.8 grams after another week. For the tertiary syphilis, the unknown duration syphilis, so someone comes, they have a positive test, but we have no clue as to when the infection was potentially acquired, or we know there was a previous negative test, but that was more than one year before. So one dose for primary, secondary, and contacts, three doses for tertiary, unknown duration, or more than one year duration. The only exception to this benzathine penicillin rule, golden rule, is neurosyphilis. In neurosyphilis, we need to give IV benzyl penicillin, the fast-acting penicillin, at very high doses for 14 days because we need to cross the blood-brain barrier. But that will be in the hospital setting. So, you know, Patients will be admitted, will have a lumbar puncture to confirm the diagnosis of neurosyphilis, and then IV benzyl penicillin will be started, and then maybe they will be discharged in the community with a penicillin infuser. But that's not really something the primary care providers need to worry about. So for, for our colleagues in the primary care sector will be benzathine penicillin. What if a patient is anaphylactic to penicillins? The only alternative is doxycycline. Again, nothing new, a very old antibiotic, very easy antibiotic to use, 100 milligrams twice a day for 14 days where we would have used a single dose of benzathine penicillin, 28 days where we would have used three weekly doses of benzathine penicillin. It's not an option for neurosyphilis. We really need benzyl penicillin, and it's not an option for pregnant women because you can't give tetracyclines in pregnancy. So in these cases, um, pregnant women or neurosyphilis patients with history of anaphylaxis to penicillin need to be admitted to the hospital for penicillin desensitization. Again, you know, if that's the case, if in doubt, talk with us, refer, we will be very happy. Um, it can, it's easy regarding the medications to use, but can be complex because of these other you know, complications. So again, any sexual health clinic will be very happy to be talked about if there's a complex patient needing treatment for syphilis. Thank you. And to conclude our podcast today, what would your take-home messages be for our listeners, please? Yeah, sure. So essentially, you know, syphilis is back. It's not uh, uh, something from the past. It's back. It's biting us. So we need to get on with diagnosing and treating as much as possible. So we don't have a vaccine. And as I told you, unfortunately, condoms cannot control the transmission of syphilis 100% of the times, even if they are still the most useful tool to be used in primary prevention. 
So really, our hopes of controlling the epidemic of syphilis rely on a seek and destroy approach. So we need to diagnose the cases and we need to treat so we can kill the bacteria before they are transmitted to someone else. So that means we need to test much more and much more frequently. And really, you know, we can't do it alone, the sexual health clinics. It takes a village. So we need multiple points of access to care, GP practices, maternity care providers, family planning, the public network of free sexual health clinics, NGOs, particularly for key populations such as men who have sex with men and people living with HIV, such as New Zealand AIDS Foundation, Body Positive, they're all doing syphilis testing, Maori health providers. We need everyone to be on board, really. And some of these options really need to be free of cost so that there are no barriers to access. And who knows, maybe in the future we'll have point-of-care tests available in, in EDs, emergency departments, um, after-hours A&D, uh, GP-run clinics, um, pharmacies, why not? So, you know, the future will bring us more and more options, but at the moment, we really need all healthcare providers in New Zealand, and particularly all primary healthcare providers, to be aware of the syphilis epidemic, to be testing more, and to be treating, and if unfamiliar with results, of the tests and treatments, please, please, please call and discuss um, with the sexual health clinics. Thank you, Massimo. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. If you're a New Zealand GP or primary care provider and would like to claim CPD points for listening to this podcast, fill in the Reflection of Learning form found at goodfellowunit.org. Thank you for listening.